0: Hans Christian Andersen, author of fairy tales including The Little Mermaid, wrote a story called The Emperor's New Clothes. This emperor was not passionate about his army, politics, or theater, but about showing off his wardrobe. He changed into a different outfit every hour of every day. So two men came to town pretending to be tailors with the ability to weave the most wonderful designs and colors. This intrigued the emperor, but so did the twist. The clothes they make are invisible to everyone, unfit for the job he held, or who was simple in his character. He needed those clothes and the powers they contain, so he supplied the tailors with large sums of money the finest silk and gold thread. They busily worked away, but of course the tailors were doing nothing at all. Day after day, they sewed invisible clothes. The king wanted to see their progress, so he sent two of his most trusted advisors. The first checked their work but saw nothing at all, so he was concerned that he was unfit to be advisor to the king. He reported that the clothes featured the most wonderful colors and patterns. The second advisor did the same. He saw nothing, was afraid, and lied to the king. Finally completed, the pretend clothes were presented to the king, but he saw nothing. Now he was afraid he was unfit to be king or was simple in character. So he too said the clothes were charming, not wanting anyone to think he was unfit to be their king. He undressed and was fitted by the pretend tailors. Then he presented his new clothes to the kingdom in a parade. The crowds cried, how beautiful are our emperor's new clothes. The clothes were seen by none, but they didn't want to be found simpletons or unfit for their jobs until a child saw the emperor and exclaimed, he has nothing on at all. The truth reverberated through the crowd, one whisper after another, until they all admitted, the emperor is walking around in his underwear. How much our era has in common with the emperor and his subjects. Secularism rules. God must be removed in every facet of our existence, including our origin. Evolutionary biologist and author Richard Dawkins wrote in the New York Times in 1989, it is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. According to National Geographic, the universe began as the size of a single atom. This superheated epicenter caused a violent, Outward explosion some 13.7 billion years ago, in which all time and energy, space and matter would originate. Forces like gravity within this radiation cloud of the original explosion, given enough time, created the galaxies, stars and planets. In an outer arm of a small galaxy named the Milky Way, hangs a blue planet caught in a gravitational relationship with a small star, but at the perfect distance to make life out of that original matter a possibility. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, chemical reactions on this planet began, forming the building blocks from which life would eventually arise out of bodies of liquid water. Single-celled organisms arose and they were exposed to difficulties and pressures from their environments in which they lived, resulting in an innumerable number of genetic mutations. The best of these were naturally selected by their environments. Only the fittest or the best genetic combinations survived. The inward desire, though, to survive led the organisms to move from the sea to the land in which fresh environmental pressures further evolved these organisms. According to the Smithsonian Institute, given enough time, some four billion years, plus the production of oxygen by the first cyanobacteria resulted in the evolution of a multitude of plants and animals through small variations and improvements one generation at a time. As one author put it on an official website of the U.S. government, Darwin's greatest discovery was design without a designer. The denial of God's existence, or even the assumption that, we, uh, that God is not necessary for our lives, is our society's invisible clothes worn by the emperor. Until tragedy strikes... Although I could not substantiate this on the internet, and I did try, I read that Winston Churchill quipped, I have never seen an atheist in a lifeboat. Suffering sometimes wakes secular people up to realize the truth. Whether people of this age commit themselves to seeing invisible clothes or not, in reality they're packed on a ship that is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. As Christians, we should not be taunting from our lifeboat as we paddle away, but our lifeboat should be parked close to the looming disaster, pleading with those on board that they would abandon ship and jump down to safety. Jesus personally invites everyone in our culture to jump down to Him and be saved. His invitation still stands, and His Spirit is still being received. Even in our culture, to people who don't know their right hand from their left, and who have been brainwashed to accept that they are the result of lucky chemical reactions and a whole lot of waiting. No wonder they are on the ship in the first place, seeking to party and have a great time. Can you blame them? They operate in a worldview in which God is a fantasy, so they reason, this short life is all there is, so I must be true to myself. In this evolutionary worldview, it doesn't matter if you love or hate what you do with your body or who or what you consider your identity to be because no one has any intrinsic value. And yet, Jesus' invitation cuts through the noise with the truth. You have value. You are important. Jesus personally loves every person on that sinking ship and every person already in the lifeboat. John 7:37. Jesus stood up and cried out, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, anyone. As Alistair Begg said, it matters a great deal to God who you are as an individual. You're not just a cosmic accident. You're not just an advanced ape. You're not just the sum of your parts. You're not a meaningless machine in a population of other meaningless machines. You're a person created by God with immense value to the one who created you. That's why Jesus speaks these words to any and to everyone. So number one on your outline, Jesus' personal invitation. This invitation stands for everyone today, but Jesus originally spoke to first century Jews in the temple in Jerusalem. The events of John 7 occur against the backdrop of a major Jewish festival, one of the three pilgrimage festivals. There's Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So Tabernacles is John 7. The festival was in autumn around the time of harvest. Jews would come to Jerusalem for the week-long feast and construct tabernacles or tents all around the city. According to Beg, their tabernacles blocked the weather, but not the sun, moon, or stars. All this was done to remind them of their ancestors who journeyed across the desert from Egypt to the land promised. God guided and provided all those years, and that's what the festival celebrated. It's also called the Feast of Booths, another name for those temporary shelters. And this feast was originally prescribed in Leviticus 23. Now, according to Kent Hughes, every day of festival week in the mornings, the priest would walk from the temple to the pool of Siloam. He would dip his golden pitcher into the water as people recited the words of Isaiah 12.3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then he would march back to the temple through the water gate to the sound of blasting drum, uh, trumpets until coming to the altar in the temple, at which he would circle once a day. Then he would pour the water down on the altar, and the waters of salvation would flow down the steps by the people's feet. It was an incredible illustration of God's blessing on his people. But on the last day of the feast, the priest would march around the altar seven times like their ancestors did at Jericho, uh, the first city they came to from the desert within the land promised. The priest would raise the pitcher and the crowd would cry, higher and higher. And then the water would splash down on the altar. It would soak it and flow down toward the people, those waters representing God's salvation. And it was that that dramatic moment that Jesus acted. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus declares that he is the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. He declares that He can provide the waters of salvation. Jesus is the Savior for any Jew, and Jesus is the Savior for anyone in our culture too. What He can provide is what all of us need. No matter how many celebrations that these Jews attended, and no matter how many rules they followed, their souls within them still lacked No matter how much pleasure someone in our day pursues, and no matter how many ways they try to find their identity, their souls within them will remain empty. Jesus' personal invitation comes in three parts. There are three verbs in what he says in verse 37. Part A, thirst. This invitation is for every person, but there is one condition. You must be thirsty. My mentor writes, all true spiritual advances begin with a thirst for God. A person must realize that whatever they are involved in, they will not get the payout promised. Pleasure, virtual reality, or pills can all be tried to quench your thirst. But what every soul needs is a friendly relationship with their Creator. We are all a ruin due to our willful rebellion against the one who made us. We remove God to be our own lords and we reinvent God to a version that we like better. Yes, we all have intrinsic value as God's creatures, but we are all ruined due to our sin. We are all glorious ruins, Alistair Begg said, and he's from Scotland. With that accent, part of the reason I like listening to him so much. Scotland is full of castles, and many of them are uninhabited and in ruins. With the right imagination, maybe you could step back from one of those castles and imagine it in its former glory, full of light and bustling with activity. Through Jesus' invitation, your ruin can return to its former glory as he will personally deal with your sin. You can be as glorious as you were designed to be with a vibrant relationship with God. But you must realize that you're thirsty. Just stop. One more attempt for the emptiness to go away will fail. Your soul is parched. Only Jesus can satisfy Now the second verb, come, your next blank. Notice that this verb requires an action to be completed. After recognizing thirst, a person must get out of that condition by coming to Jesus. Your old life and all your old attempts at satisfaction must be left behind. Coming to Jesus and leaving what you're doing is a risk. And we talked about last Sunday that trusting Jesus is a risky adventure. But after recognizing that you have a great need, you must swallow your pride and dive into the risk. You must come to Jesus. And third, drink. You must come to Jesus in the way in which... He requires drinking of Him, completely relying on Him. You must embrace a new life defined by Jesus, defined by His character and His ways. Coming to Jesus is like saying no to the ways of your old life, and drinking of Jesus is like saying yes to a completely new life. You rely on Him and nothing else to satisfy you. Verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John MacArthur pointed this out to me. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to thirst, come, and drink. Come out of your sinful thirst to Jesus and drink of him. So let's finish the math problem on your outline. Thirst plus come plus drink equals believing in Jesus. The same sequence occurred in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. Jesus offered the woman a gift, living water, in verse 10. Whoever drinks of this water, Jesus said in verse 14, will never be thirsty again because in her a spring of living water will well up to eternal life. That's the same language as chapter 7. The woman asked Jesus for this amazing water in verse 15, but what's standing in the way? Verse 16, Jesus says, go, call your husband and come back. Jesus reveals in verse 18 that she's had five husbands, and the one that she's currently with is not her husband. The woman must deal with her old life so that she can embrace a new life. She must realize that she's thirsty first. She keeps talking with Jesus until she runs back to town in verse 29. And she testifies, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? But then later in verse 39, many people believed in Jesus because of what the woman said. But listen to verse 42 and what they said to the woman. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They believed in Jesus. They realized their thirst. They came and they drank the living water. Out of their hearts began to flow this living water. Jesus gave them a new life. That's what's offered in John 4. That's what he's offering here in John 7. And that's what he offers to you. But will you waste your whole life gorging yourself with infinitesimal benefits? Will you use what little sand is left in the hourglass that is your life drilling in the same cisterns that hold no water? The pleasure that you seek from serving yourself the world's possessions and selling yourself for the world's attention on social media is like trying to quench your thirst on a scorching day from the midst of one of those spray bottle fans. Your soul was made for water, living water, that Jesus longs for you to receive. But you must recognize your thirst, come and drink. Are you content with the mist of the world, or will you dive into the river? Believe in Jesus. Verse 39 is not in quotes, so John wrote it to make his point clear. The life that Jesus offers to everyone is a life quenched by the Holy Spirit from God himself. What this Old Testament text foretells in verse 38 is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. More proof that God thinks that you have immense value as a person. Even those of you wallowing in your sin, denying or rejecting God. God loves you. Jesus is not only inviting you to everlasting life, full of living water, beginning today, but Jesus will also give you His Holy Spirit for God to always be yours, with you, and for you to always be God's treasure with Him. When you believe in Jesus, God will personally love you so much that you will begin to think that you're the only person that God is caring for at the moment. Yet this invitation is for all, and God is overseeing an innumerable number of rivers bursting from the hearts of His people. God is so vast and his love is so immense that he personally loves you and will care for you uniquely. He does that through his spirit. And notice in verse 39, the word, uh, the verb glorified. John believes that what Jesus will endure in the future as of the timing of this narrative is a glorious event. The Spirit will be given as a gift to people after Jesus is glorified. So, Jesus must be killed at the hands of those He came to save, save as the way God makes forgiveness for all the sins of the world committed against Him. Jesus will go into a tomb dead, but burst forth alive. And then He will return to the one who sent Him to prepare a place For those who will respond to His invitation and the gift of His Spirit. Here's the truth. You're dead in your sins. In the tomb already, but Jesus will make you alive, change you, and empower you to live a new joy-filled life with with the Spirit at your center. To summarize, let's fill in the blanks on your listening guide. Number one, part B, Jesus offers his spirit to you for a life of joy and satisfaction. So then John narrates the reactions to Jesus' emotional invitation, and verse 43 is a nice summary. So there was a division among the people over him. We will quickly move through these. Part two, four responses. Starting in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. But others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So, part A the crowd's confusion. The crowd's confusion. Some identify Jesus as the Moses-like prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18. Some think he could be the Messiah and others dismiss him totally because of where they assume he was born. Verse 42 was explained last week as one of the expectations of first century Jews for who the Messiah was going to be. But the crowd is far from consensus, with even some wanting to arrest him, in verse 44. Next, starting in verse 45, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. This could also be called confusion, but I think it's more heightened. So let's call part B, The Officer's shock. The religious leaders dispatch these officers, the temple police, back in verse 32 to arrest Jesus because they felt that he was stealing the show at the feast. But they return on the final day of the feast after Jesus is able to give his invitation. And they're amazed. No one has ever spoken like this man. There's something different about him. And they can't quite put their finger on it. But they're clearly in shock Because they come back to the Pharisees and tell them the truth. They were listening to Jesus, so they couldn't arrest Him. And then the Pharisees are downright mean. Part C. The Pharisees' volatility. The Pharisees' volatility. I had to look that that word up how to spell it. Starting at verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So they take aim at the officers. They call them dim-witted for being deceived. Educated people like them would never and have never believed in Jesus. And then they fire at the crowd for being those dim-witted people who are ignorant of the law. The Pharisees are superior and they're uh, volatile about it. But then the most surprising man makes a second appearance in John's gospel. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? D. Nicodemus' defense. Maybe this is not the most resounding defense at face value, but since Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews and a member of the Pharisees' cohort, even the teacher of Israel, asking this question is actually a huge defense. He asks a question about their law, which is their life's devotion, if they should judge a man without a proper trial. And then verse 52 shows their volatile tempers flare again, you would have thought Nicodemus slapped their mamas. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Have you ever been so mad that you forget important facts as you slay that other person with your accusations? That's what's happening here. The Pharisees accuse their fellow Pharisee of being from backwater, low-life Galilee, like Jesus, and say that no prophet could ever come from that disgusting place, totally forgetting about Jonah and Nahum, from their scriptures to which they are devoted. The Pharisees condemn themselves, Alistair Begg says, like the secular and atheistic academics in our day. But yet, this invitation is even for them. And that Pharisee Nicodemus proves that Jesus' invitation can be received and change a life. He's on a spiritual journey in John's gospel. He comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness in John 3 to ask him some questions He then questions his fellow's intentions about Jesus here in John 7. But in six months' time, he will publicly help bury Jesus' dead body in John 19. Won't you, too, consider the claims made by Jesus in the New Testament? A Pharisee did. We'll close by changing emphases. I've been talking particularly to those far from God because they have not believed in Jesus the one way to the Father. Now let's return to verses 37 through 39 and consider them from the perspective of a believer in Jesus. Jesus's glorification is now a past event to us and so is the moment that you believed in Jesus. God kept his promise. You receive the Spirit. Verse 38 As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, from where do these rivers of living water flow? Out of Jesus? No. From you and me, the believers in the Lord Jesus, we should have the Spirit this living water flow out of us, blessing our environment and the people around us. I love the way Alistair Begg put it. How many times have I referenced him now? Real Christians will leak. When you bump into a Christian, living water is supposed to come out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. But how easily do we put our head down and get focused on what we're doing that when we're bumped into, crankiness comes out? Or how often do we miss a golden opportunity only to realize it later and kick ourselves? Four houses on our small street have had turnover in the 14 months that we've lived there. How many opportunities I've missed to be a blessing? I graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and if you're a graduate, the is capitalized and very important to you. But back when I was born, the seminary was the most theologically liberal Southern Baptist Seminary and one of the most liberal in the country. Homosexual weddings were performed on the library steps and much more, but in 1993, a 33-year-old wearing these big honkin' glasses was elected president, Albert Moeller. He was different. He lived his life under the authority of the Bible. And he was determined to return the institution to its founding document, the Abstract of Principles, which begins by stating that the Bible is inspired by God and given to us without error. The seminary had drifted, but he was determined to bring it back but his vision was tested. In chapel, students would stand with their backs to him throughout his sermons. Faculty would list their disagreements with the content of his messages. Many graduates would not shake his hand at commencement. When faculty resigned, a protest was held on the seminary lawn and Dr. Moeller was burned in effigy. A student spat on him, others taunted his children, Bulletproof glass was installed in his office. He and his wife sat on the floor of their home crying and praying. That's how they persevered. A prospective student visited his office one day and said, Dr. Moeller, the students here don't like you. The faculty isn't on your side. After being on campus for a few days, I don't know if you can really pull this off. Do you believe that you can turn this ship around? Dr. Moller replied, I intend to either turn this ship around or I intend to sink it. He believed that he was the man put there by God for such a time. I wonder if I had such vision or such commitment to the Lord what my street would be like, or what your workplace could be, or what our homes could be. What What would it be like to view every task? every hardship, every conversation, through the perspective of making much of Jesus. From God's perspective, how much have I really accomplished if I check all the boxes on my to-do list? Or is it a greater accomplishment to check less boxes, but spend 10 more interrupted minutes playing and talking with my son? Cranking down the lawnmower to spend five minutes asking how I can pray for my neighbor. Incorporating meeting someone new during family time at the community pool. Taking out the headphones on my morning walk. The spirit-filled life is a life of satisfaction and blessing, but am I the only one being blessed and satisfied? The Spirit is the very power of God living inside of every one of God's people. Maybe this reminder is for you that God did not put His Spirit in there for just you. You were made for more. Ask God to help you gain a vision for the salvation and the satisfaction of those people around you. Pray something like this. God, give me the vision and the confidence in you Knowing that you have put me in my workplace, my, on my street, in my family, for such a time as this. Number three, the Spirit-led believer shares the blessing with others. John's gospel makes clear that Jesus personally loves every person. Here, he invites those living in parched earth to experience the full life in the river of living water. Jump off the sinking ship to safety in the lifeboat. And he invites those with the living water already to share because there is plenty more space in your boat. Believer and non believer, you were made for significance, to live saturated and seeping the Spirit of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are so grateful for your blessings to us, and and we pray, Lord, that we would appreciate your blessings, that that appreciation would go deep in us, and that flowing out of our appreciation would be blessing to others. May we show that we appreciate you by the way we live. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a vision and a commitment to you for those of us who have believed in Jesus, for those who have received the Spirit. May we know that we've been put on our street, in our workplace, part of the community pool club for such a time as this. Help us to share, I pray. And I pray for those who are living in the wisdom of the world, which is not wisdom at all, that they would come. They would recognize their thirst. They would drink. And that by believing in Jesus, you would satisfy them with your spirit, I pray. Bless us, Lord. We need it. And help us to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.